Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Welcome to a very special guest episode of 16 to 1. This week, we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Giselle Shorter, the Director of National Education at the Rakes Foundation. Hello, Dr. Shorter. So nice to have you with us. Hello. Delighted to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Shorter's career is rooted in a deep belief that an equitable society starts with an equitable education system. For 20 years, she has led large-scale community-based programs, research and policy initiatives to advance justice and equity, close health disparities, and ensure access and opportunities for Black and Brown youth and communities to flourish. In 2018, she was recruited to the Rakes Foundation to lead the K-12 school and system redesign portfolio focused on a commitment to grow the foundation's impact and to advance justice and equity in the redesign of our national public education system by leveraging the science of learning and development. Today, she is responsible for impact and strategy coherence across the K-12 post-secondary education field building and policy portfolios as a director of national education strategy. In addition to her foundation work, Giselle is also an adjunct professor and founding faculty member of the Leadership and Innovation Degree Program at NYU Steinhardt Department of Administration, Leadership, and Technology, where she advises doctoral students on a wide range of complex problems of practice. Dr. Shorter earned her doctorate in education from Columbia University Teachers College, a fellow Blue Lion, so good to see you. She holds an MBA from Long Island University and a BA from Amherst College. She is a Pahara Aspen Fellow and active member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. So, Dr. Shorter, you have an incredible and fascinating career, which in addition to what we just shared in your bio there includes stints at ESPN, the Anti-Defamation League, Rain Boston East, which is an aging-related social service agency, Boys and Girls Club of America, and Turnaround for Children. So impressive. And with a career that is so full of so many different kinds of accomplishments and possibilities, I am so curious to hear how you decided to dedicate yourself to the student experience. How did you how did you land at education after so many interesting turns? Wow. It sounds like I've been everywhere a tour de force. You know, it sounds very different when when you're hearing someone else relate or mirror back your your career trajectory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think if I'm brutally honest, I started in youth development really because I have been the beneficiary of so many resources in community, so many youth development, mentoring, guidance, supports in my home community of Spanish Harlem, El Barrio, New York City, and wanted to pay it forward saw the kinds of generative, community-rooted programming that I benefited from in the 80s, right, starting to disappear. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, decided that I had something to say. I had a valuable lens. I could be a resource. I honestly was, was a code switcher, right? Based on my academic, my social networks, I could bridge across lines of difference pretty fluidly. And so as I thought about 
who was least well served in my community and where I wanted to intervene, I came through multiple doors, right? And so I came through initially the door of youth development. I came through the door of juvenile justice. And what I realized was that education to my guesstimation, is the most powerful lever and door through which to come, that I could support young people in their development, not just of of skills, right, academic, social, emotional skills, but their full integrated development in the heart of an educational experience. And so decided to anchor on, on ed as the gateway, recognizing that most of the young people that come from communities like me that are in need of just a little bit of extra care don't have the ability or aren't afforded the ability to live single issue lives and so mm-hmm. i think we're we're at a tipping point where education through covid through these last 3 plus years has been in a place to account for development and integrated development in more generative and unique ways so yes, that's yes. why Ed and and why now? Excellent, that's wonderful. I'm I'm the odd one out in this group because I am not a teacher myself. I am just fascinated by education and the stories of education and like what you were saying. I have benefited so much from so many opportunities that have come in the course of my formal and informal education. It's just I love your dedication and I love to hear your inspiration for where you are now. I, I don't know, Katie, Katie might have some questions for you about your, your classroom experience. Are you currently are you currently in the classroom or no? So it, I, I want to clarify this. Uh-huh. I am and have been part of the wraparound supports in schools. So mm-hmm. I am not a certified teacher. I have partnered with educators. I continue to partner with K-12 educators. I am humbled by their ability to translate not just complex ideas, but to invest in the development of young people, mm-hmm. to translate the knowledge, to set the, the container for learning. But that that has never been my full-time job. Gotcha. Right? So gotcha. even when I was part of the founding team that launched schools serving multi-system involved young people, I took responsibility for the wraparound supports, right? Mm-hmm. How do we actually create uh, primary person structures? What does it look like, particularly for young people that were court involved, had been homeless or in transitional housing and child welfare involved to have those case management level supports yeah. addressed within the heart of a school without becoming a medical model? Right. Like how do we honor dignity and the need for all of the things and not ask educators to be the single source for everything for every child? Absolutely. That was just going to be my follow up question is that it seems like in a lot of cases, educators end up having to just fill in those roles and try to become those support systems themselves when they're also, you know, juggling classroom experiences and all kinds of different things is we tend to not perhaps place as much focus on those support systems as we, as we should, because we don't think of them as the sort of primary driver of what happens in classroom learning, but they absolutely, you know, these, these, these things absolutely have to be in place in order to, to make it possible for everybody to be present for the learning experience, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. because the access to these things is so hard. You know, I teach in Southeastern Ohio and Appalachia, and 
that's the kind of support that we need. So this, this is exactly the kind of work that teachers need because yeah. I'm listening to you saying, I need a million more of you. I need you everywhere, you know, because <laughs> that's the support that teachers do need, I think, to, I don't want to say it's a burden, but, you know, like part of what I take home is those little things that maybe yes. haven't always fallen into a teacher's job description. Right on. Mm-hmm. I had noted earlier, I, did, I think we actually might have even overlapped for a couple of months at Teachers College when I was there doing my master's program because I was looking at your timelines and I think I might have been there. Could you tell us just briefly about that doctoral program, what you were, what you were doing at, uh, at Teachers College? Because I'd love to hear about it. Sure. I was in the, the health ed, health and behavior studies program. And so I came in with a, a deep interest commitment to really understanding perceptions and risk for youth, particularly multi-system involved youth, that Mm -hmm. might not have the benefit of the kind of social normative structures around them. And how do we support them to develop their own compass in much the same way that my grammar school did, as well as my family, right? And if, if you don't have those kind of nurturing environments as anchors, where else do young people get them? Mm -hmm. Um, I wound up evolving my area of research and study at TC to ultimately focus my doctoral work and my my dissertation on perceptions of risk and or vulnerability to STDs and HIV AIDS based on Mm -hmm. relationship status, right? There's so much to be learned there, but I think the, the through thread is this notion that while science might say that there are particularly vulnerable populations, whether it be to gang violence or um, particular STDs or diseases, there are intra-community assets that are often ignored or missed by big data. And so how, how do we understand those things? How do we actually remain intimate and proximate? So my doctoral chair was Dr. Barbara Wallace. My second was Fully Love from Mailman. And so it was great to do an interdisciplinary focus, really getting under the hood. Yeah. That so we can walk out on another podcast about about that <laughs> that doctoral work. I would absolutely love to hear more about yeah. that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. So today, although I'm hoping I can continue to pick your brain about that as it comes up, we're gonna talk a little bit about your work currently. Like we mentioned, you're the director of national education strategy at the Rakes Foundation. Your portfolio includes leadership work within the Building Equitable Learning Environments Network, the Bell Network. Is that how we pronounce that. Yes. Just wanted to make sure. Spot on. Great. The Bell Network is a group of education researchers, foundations, intermediaries, and their district networks working with educators, policymakers, grant makers, schools, and school support organizations to innovate and implement learning environments grounded in research and in the science of learning and development. Can you tell us a little more about your day-to-day at the Riggs Foundation and your work with the Bell Network? We'd love to, we'd love our listeners to hear more about this work that you do. Sure. So one, I'll share that I was a grantee in the very same portfolio that I initially assumed responsibility for, Uh, and uh that was the K-12 school and system redesign portfolio. So as the director of our national ed strategy, I continue to PO or directly advance the strategy, run grants and an investment schema aligned to that body of work, and also take on responsibility for partnering with the program officers that 
are designing and stewarding other portfolios to ensure coherence and strategic impact across all of our national ed giving. Our historic portfolios were the science weren't, right? So elevating the science, the meaning, the depth, but also the application of constructs like growth mindset, investing in some of that work early in mindfulness, right? As we were at one point really focused on student experience, but from the lens of really calming down, particularly in the most chaotic environments, how do, yeah. how do we support educators and students to pause, reflect, and create more space in incredibly fast-moving, fast-paced, and, mm-hmm. and chaotic schools that are often the lowest performing and the most violent? But I digress. So my day-to-day job, right, working with those program officers, historic uh, science warrant increasingly is living in K-12 and post-secondary, respectively. My colleague Dina leads our post-secondary redesign efforts, just onboarded a colleague, Mark, who will take on responsibility for strategic design and advancing grants against our resource equity investments, as well as students experiencing homelessness. That's part of our policy portfolio. And then field building. So Mm -hmm. in the K-12 school and system redesign that I continue to, if you will, PO or program officer, uh, lead the program officer functions for for that portfolio, it includes the foundation's efforts to advance education policies that support students furthest from educational justice, right, such as those experiencing homelessness, mm-hmm. uh, engaged in the foster care system and or justice system. And building will demand an investment amongst other funders and partners to respond to the needs of today and tomorrow's education system. You know, a large component of my work is in supporting and, and guiding the strategy of the Bell Network. And as you said, Bell is Building Equitable Learning Environments Network. We're collectively focused on creating and sharing resources and tools to build a better and more positive version of our public education system here in America that can support every student to unlock their full potential. You know, and and those sound like pretty words to some folks, but I think increasingly we hear from educators, like this is actually the whole point of the thing, and from parents (laughs) that um, they want students to reliably see their student, their child, to understand in the seeing what are areas for development that's academic, that's emotional, that is in their affect, their ability to engage their executive function, right? Um, So this full integrated development, see me, understand, understand me, and then deploy resources to me or my child when I need it and in ways that are meaningful and resonant such that young people can adopt those strategies, those tools and support to grow. So that's what we're up to. I'm excited by that work. The that network is very exciting work. With, yeah. Yeah, with districts yeah. And, and states and other nonprofits around the country to drive toward, and unapologetically so, a system that reliably produces a set of outcomes that I think we can all be proud of. Yeah, I would say that's amazing. Wow. 
Do you know I'm so excited about Dr. Shorter? Yes, do you. Yes, do you? you take care of okay, yourself. Giselle, please. Okay, sorry. Um, Giselle, do I, you I don't please need some rest because we need you. <laughs> that is um, that is crucial work that you are doing and very difficult work. I can't imagine. I would imagine that even trying to communicate the reasons why this work is necessary is another part of this burden. Uh, I think that communicating some of the contours of the current educational landscape, uh, the K-12 educational landscape to the public in a way that motivates, you know, like we're going to talk about philanthropy and kind of, but but motivates just engagement with the educational system is is very difficult, I think, because yes. because education systems traditionally have, you know, we have kind of siloed ways of talking about progress or we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just different yes. metrics that are very familiar to us, but very inaccessible to people who are not participating in the system actively day to day. So this is so interesting and so difficult and we're so excited to hear more about it. I'm even thinking like in my case of my students, because I teach high school English, you know, I have parent teacher conferences where they come in and the parents who maybe graduated from the same school will say, well, that isn't how it used to be done. And you would hope that parents (laughs) would want things to not be done identical to how it was for them. But for them, it's sort of like what worked for me. So why can't it work for little Johnny or little Susie or whoever? On my end, what I find is that I'm convincing parents that we need the change just as much as I'm convincing, you know, anyone else to be supporting the change. And so that's hard work because even when you get as close to the family as that, sometimes they're resistant. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, when we're talking about the education system, it sounds very meta and folks are mm-hmm. by and large resistant to systems being involved in their everyday life. Yeah. When we talk about their experience of middle school and you can get folks to tap into the angst that is inherent in that developmental phase, the kind of awkwardness that every one of us experience, the vulnerability, the questions about belonging, even the cool kids, even the young people that were, so to speak, top of the food chain, had moments of doubt of, you know, we weren't necessarily calling it anxiety then, right? Mm -hmm, We weren't mm -hmm. giving the naming power that we might today to some of the same dynamics, right? But when you ask parents and and community members about those types of experiences, they're like, oh, yeah, if I could redo, I would have hoped that someone would have invested in seeing me and Mm -hmm. telling me, oh, this is normal, right? Like everybody's worried about that. But again, when we're talking about the education system, folks don't necessarily see that. And when they do, they're like, well, I don't want some bureaucrat involved in my life or my child's Mm -hmm. like day-to-day experience. So- Generally speaking, when I'm talking to the average person, I am not, I'm not advancing the like, oh, I'm in the business of transforming the education system. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'm, you know, I keep it pretty simple. And, and one of the things that I say to my friends and colleagues in the research and, and funder space, as distinct from practitioners, because practitioners often don't go there. What would you say to your highly intelligent grandmother that has an acute smell test, right? She can smell the BS from a mile away, right? Like, (laughs) what would you say about what you do? And Uh so in that context, it's like, oh, I help educators and folks that lead schools, districts, and state systems 
to get better at not only their practice, but to ensure policies and the resources are in place for every adult to do their best thinking, their best job in service of young people, right? Like, keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Um, When I talk to educators then about what we're up to and how we're trying to transform the system, it's even more pointed, right? That we are in service of elevating what we have come to understand about the science of learning and human development, right? Like getting back to basics because we realize that most schools of ed are actually not teaching adolescent or child development unless you're a special a specialist, mm-hmm. right? In early childhood yep. or developmental differences, right? Um, and diverse learners, right? So like how do we build the muscle to understand what is normal, what is appropriate, the idea that like normal no longer holds, there is no normal, right? Yeah. Like how do you account for not as one of those old school kind of cellophanes on top of your practice, but embedded in your practice, seeing, understanding, creating the kinds of learning environments and conditions where young people can have at bats, right? They can try something, they can fail publicly, which none of us want to do, right? They can fail publicly. They can have the scaffolds and support to try again. They receive the kind of feedback and coaching, right? Wow. How powerful is it to say to an educator like, oh yeah, you offer high performance feedback. You offer coaching. Mm -hmm. Wow. That that is so liberating for many of the the educators that I've worked directly with and and the kinds of things that I hear back from educators Uh about where they have not, not just the the freedom and autonomy, but have the true power in a developmental relationship with, with students. So. Yeah. Excellent. The Bell Network work backing up, you were talking just a moment ago about centering the student experience in a couple of different ways. I want to dive down like you're doing a bit now and getting into kind of some of the specifics. I'm curious to hear a little more in depth about what centering the student experience, Mm. what that looks like when we kind of scope it to a couple of different areas. And I want to First, just ask you about, you're sort of talking about it already, but classroom instruction, that desire to center the student experience in the classroom. And how does that, how does your work inform that classroom practice? Yeah, so thanks. Because when you swim in waters, it's so, so hard to see that you are, you are using the language, the jargon of that water. So (laughs) thanks for pushing me to be even more specific. Oh no. You know that, but that's, that's, that's the work. So Uh we define positive student experiences as when students feel safe intellectually, Mm -hmm. socially, right? Where they have a sense of belonging, they're engaged and connected to their learning environment and what they are learning. Research and latest in in brain science shows us that students are more engaged and motivated as learners when their school experiences are shaped by not only their interests, their needs, and their perspectives, right? And so I'll say that again, shaped by their interests, their needs, and their perspectives. You can teach core content and still make it engaging, humanized, and of interest to our young people. I mean, this is a total left, but one of the examples that comes to mind was that when I was uh, CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of, of Harlem, I had a partnership with the National Park Service. And so I had my youngest students in elementary school 
working on design of a garden where they had to grapple with content and constructs like what how much soil do i need right that takes the the kind of abstract notion of volume mm-hmm. <laughs> and makes it real and tangible for my mm-hmm. older middle school and high school students we were engaging in hardscape same thing here's the square footage how how much you know what kind of supplies do i need what's the utility of having a bricked path right why would you make a set of choices how do you actually think about what are the choice points and where and when would you use core science learning core math and then like straight up street smarts right mm-hmm. so that is part of what we mean when we talk about shaped by their interest their needs and their perspectives so ultimately a student's experience is created and shaped by the systems practices and and people in place right and that that's for all of us and it's people in the system like we are in the system we are employed by we are exerting force on we are maintaining we are stewards of an educational system we play a role and we can do an even better job in centering student experience you know in the classroom students learn more when teachers establish not only positive classroom environments but create the kind of conditions including recognizing and affirming the backgrounds and identities of all students right? Like diversity is actually a plus. Mm -hmm. Um, Foster a sense of community in the classroom, right? Providing the space for respectful and critical feedback for growth, the kinds of at-bats and failure, public failure that that we talked about. And then ensuring that the classroom work feels interesting and meaningful. Back to that Mm -hmm. that community, Mm -hmm. right? The reclaiming of a space that had become an eyesore, Right? Absolutely. Adapting, modifying, and applying those those hard skills in real time. So in, in terms of funding and education policies, we know that both are more effective when they take into account the daily experiences of schools for students as well as the experiences of teachers. You know, this can look like creating a shared vision of what is equitable teaching and learning, prioritizing the well-being of not just students and families, but also educators, right? Like those things don't have to be intention. Um, And then accounting for community variance, needs, desires, ambitions for their their own children. So happy to to just call out one example of all of this in, in play and in action. When a student in Chicago public schools, particularly in elementary school, brought up that they felt policed everywhere they went in the school. Someone is watching, someone is naming, someone is asking, by what right do I belong here? So the by what right is my language on what an elementary student very clearly said, somebody's always watching, which Mm. made me think of the 80s song, by the way. But, (laughs) you know, that, that included security, that included teachers, that included, you know, the principal and every adult that saw the student out of a classroom. Why are you here? What are you doing? Using an equity lens, educators at the, at the school, including the school's principal, worked together to evaluate systems of discipline that were in place and create and, and like audited how are we creating space where students, educators, um, and the community, parents, right, have their voice heard, but also recognize this is their space. This is their space Absolutely. to co-construct and design mm-hmm. and own. And that not only are you welcome, but like you have a right to be here, right? Right. And so 
the vulnerability, especially from leadership, was essential to receive the feedback from from a young person, right? Not in a challenging way, right? Yeah. But but a declaration of like, here is my experience in the place that I spend more time than even my home, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is how I feel. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and this is how I feel every day, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, this led to positive shifts in the school's discipline and also their grading policy. Because once they took the first step, they started to realize, wow, we see challenge, challenges. And when I say not challenging behavior, but a challenge of authority, questioning, well, why are you asking me that? Right? Not as probing from some students and requests for clarification from others, but as menacing from some, right? Mm -hmm. So that continuum of policies that were then evaluated and for whom are they centering? And for for whose like normative discourse have we prioritized a set of things? So, you know, I'm I'm proud of that example, but it's kind of holding that space where we can ask the, the provocative question of a young person as early as like elementary, second grade, what's your experience in school? And yeah, if you yeah. ask the question in the safe space, by golly, it's shocking what they tell you. Well, shocking. I'm sure. Somebody's even, always watching me. Absolutely. Even asking the question prompts students to become more present to and active in their own learning rather than thinking of it as something that just happens to them as well. So I think that invitation is very important sometimes. And uh, I mean, Katie, you can speak to this. You were just, you were just in a committee meeting yesterday about uh, dealing with some of this stuff in, in your school. You are taking a sort of system systemic approach to disciplinary issues and po- positive behavioral. I don't know if you want to speak, speak about that a little bit, but it sounds yeah. like it overlaps with mm-hmm. some of these questions too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things going through a higher right now, Giselle, is called PBIS, Positive Behavioral Instruction Systems, Informational. I always do this. Yeah, sorry. Interventions and supports. Positive Thank behavioral yes. interventions there we go. and supports. Yes, as part of the multi-tiered system of support. Yeah. Yes. So I've been on this committee for a few years and it's been it's been eye-opening because one of the things that we've been trying to focus on is we're trying to get rid of like perfect attendance awards. And while things like all A's and all A's and B's are important for some, that isn't like an accurate measure for most students. And so we shouldn't be validating only these things when in other cases, plenty of our students are succeeding, but it's not through a typical lens of what we have valued as an education system. And so that's been a lot of the work that we've been doing, but we were talking yesterday in my committee meeting about how the problems that we're seeing are not problems we've ever seen before of students. And it's a factor of home lives. It's a factor, you know what I mean? Like Ohio right now and has been for a long time. This is not a a title we're proud of, but kind of one of the homes of the opioid crisis, you know? And so that's been something that has shaken plenty of communities in our area. So when we go through all the things that our students are experiencing and facing and what their home lives are like, the goal is to try to reward them for showing up and for being there and for being yeah. present and for participating even, you know, so we're trying to find ways to acknowledge those students and meet them where they are and to make them know that even though they're not being held like the typical standards of what our high school has normally approved of, which I don't really agree to anyways, that they're still doing <laughs> great. And we're just so glad yeah. they're there, you know, so. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a fine line, right? So this, this mm-hmm. struggle between, and I'm, I'm going to use other people's language. 
I, I remember I was coaching years ago a principal of a historically underperforming, and I mean generationally historically underperforming, violent school in in the Bronx, actually in a community that my longtime partner grew up in. And he said, you know, what folks, what you, pol- what you polite people, and this is in one of our first, first meetings, um, well before he got to know me, right? So he said, what you polite people <laughs> like to think is that the kids come to, you know, come to school, like already they're, they're like gussied up and they're eager to go. But what, what, what I can tell you is when crack cocaine hit the community, crack cocaine showed up in my school. When there's gang warring in a community, it shows up in the heart of a school. Kids don't leave that outside the door. It comes into our school. It, it is part of the water that everyone is navigating, students, families, educators. Mm -hmm. And so On the one hand, it is helpful to understand and be real about the context in which everyone is working, the context in which young people are learning, growing, and developing. What is the impact of of childhood um, adversity? What is the impact of ACEs, right? The impact of of trauma, poverty, all of that on the developing brain, how young people show up in their affect, but also what we can do, what we know from the science about how to reduce anxiety, cortisol levels, how to create, like what is the antidote to Mm -hmm. that level of toxicity, how to ritualize and stabilize if no place else in a child's life, the learning environment. How to then also say, okay, recognizing i.e. educator voice, recognizing I have neither the bandwidth, the skill, or the resources to solve all these other problems. Yes. <laughs> I can hold this yep. container. Mm-hmm. I can create a space where you can pause, center, and I can still hold you to account for rigorous mm-hmm. academic engagement. I cannot just give you an award for showing up, even though mm-hmm. I recognize in the South Side of Chicago, where that second year, that second grader was showing up to school every day, like you had to walk through literally a war zone to get here. So yes, kudos to you. I appreciate that you got here. You got here on time. And I appreciate that you came to learn and engage. Okay. Yeah. So I see you today. You look a little off. Is something going on? Do you need to say something out loud so that you can let it go, you can put it in the box, and you can focus on these multiplication tables, right? Mm. Like, that's, that's a hell of an ask, right? right. To, Absolutely. to ask someone to parking lot the reality of their lives, to yeah. create the emotional and the cognitive bandwidth to meaningfully engage in the educational yeah. experience. But that's what we're asking kids to do, depending on where they come from. And this mm-hmm. isn't a black or brown or, you know, rich or poor, right? Like the ACEs study was done with mm-hmm. 80% white, largely middle and affluent kids, yeah. right? So there's a lot happening in households and in communities that's showing up in schools. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. I, I was always told, and this this quote always, before I really got, you know, into more than like two years of teaching, I was always like, that's kind of hokey. But the quote that's like, if a student is loved at home, they come to school to learn. And if they're not loved at home, they come to school to be loved. And I always was like, yeah, okay, I love my students. And 
it it took a while for that to really sink in in the way that like was meaningful and those are the students I can like handpick now like those are the kids that I am gravitated towards because they're the kids that were celebrating an 18th birthday because they're still at school and they haven't dropped out or something like that and I think there's a lot of truth to that and I think that that's something that's misconstrued in education a lot when we're so focused on data and numbers and everything else a lot of our a lot of my students don't have any kind of anchor at home, you know, and so they rely on us for that. And so when you were talking about like that safe space, like that classroom, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you showed up, but I'm still, you know, I think that's important. And I think that that's actually more of what I do as a teacher than I thought I was going to. Yeah. And I wasn't prepared for that. I, I was not at all prepared for that emotional, that support. And so when that became like the most of my teaching, I was like, I'm not qualified to be <laughs> to do That's this for you I love you and I want to help you but I don't think I'm like no. I don't think I can yeah. so. I'd call out the search institute and their tools and resources on healthy developmental relationships right and mm-hmm. the kinds of relationships that ed- educators can and should be aspiring to develop with with students what's the right side of that line right mm-hmm. around I see yeah. you I understand I value you I am signaling to you and creating a safe, developmentally appropriate relationship. And this notion of like, you don't get love at home, so I'm going to give it to you here, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that's, you know, that that can be a fine line for folks, right? And so yeah. no matter how how challenging the population of, of young person I have served, I have been fortunate enough to be able to support our young people to lock in on who is the trusted adult that you would select in your life? There is someone. Who is it? Right? And so how do we think about whether it's the person at school, whether it is someone in your household, whether it is a family, it, even in the midst of all the crazy, they love you. They are committed to and invested in your growth and development. Now, where do you want to go with that? Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I hear this from teachers all the time. I mean, in my, over the last 15, 17 years, I have heard with remarkable consistency, particularly educators serving in some of the lowest performing schools, and that's controlling for urban, suburban, rural, right? Like in the lowest performing schools, educators are more often than not saying, I don't have the tools in my toolbox to account for the breadth and depth of need that I am addressing, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so where do I go? One yep. great resource, Search Institute, developmentally appropriate and healthy relationships, great resources there. Turnaround for Children, great resources. And we'll put these links in our show notes too. I do want to ask, It's uh, these are some pretty intense challenges. I'm just curious to know what you think the biggest challenges are that are being faced by schools, by institutional partners, by people like you and the work you do. What are the what what are these challenges is what we were just speaking about <laughs> the sort of under-resourcing of schools to deal with these many and very complicated multifaceted uh, issues that students bring when they enter the school system. Is that the nexus of challenge or are there other pain points that you have identified as being pretty important? Yeah. I mean, when I think about, right, the most intense challenges being faced by educational and institutional partners in today's landscape, for sure, what comes to mind first is that 
young people and communities have experienced over these last handful of years, the impacts of the COVID crisis and economic crisis that has resulted, right? The kind of climate change crises that we we see, you know, with mudsides and, and extreme weather and all the things with a social and racial reckoning, all those things in the water over these last three years, an awareness that those that have historically been least well-served were disproportionately impacted through all of that toxicity, Mm -hmm. through all of that upheaval over the last three years. And so, of course, I mean, we, we couldn't imagine that all of those compounding dynamics would not have historic and disproportionately negative impact on certain young people. Like we could have anticipated certain things. Furthermore, I think we anticipated and saw the political and operational challenges facing school districts and higher ed institutions continue to intensify in the last few years. I don't know if folks are talking at scale. There's a lot in the popular discourse being written about teacher shortages. But I'm not sure that folks are actually saying, and do you realize that school leaders and district personnel are actually setting aside dedicated days to act as subs, right? Like, it's not just that there there aren't, there's a shortage. Like, where are we pulling people from? Do we have the skilled workforce to actually get into classrooms and meaningfully teach and and be in relationship and educate our, our young people? Right. And so so the reality is that these compounding crises likely took us back 20 years in terms of progress. Right. And so that's signaled by NAEP scores, student mental health and well-being data, workforce well-being and mental health data and an erosion of equity forward policy and and resourcing. So it's a lot. It's a lot going on. And and. It's, it's converging. But with all this, we continue to have an opportunity, right? Like, I'm not a glasses, glasses half empty kind of gal, right? So, but with all that, we have an opportunity and strong demand from students, parents, educators, and leaders to reshape how kids learn and experience school, not in some like mythical time period, like <laughs> today, right now right? This is both urgent and necessary work. Mm-hmm. Folks are trying to figure out how to do their job different because we're never going to go back to what was. The young people that are sitting in front of us, some of them, you know, you, you have third graders that have never been in a school for eight hours, right? Like you've got to get to some foundational training and learning and developmental experiences before you can start teaching them whatever is the scope and sequence or curriculum for third grade. Mm-hmm. You've got to attune right. to those things as well. So I'll pause there, but I mean, I am optimistic. That's great. I want to hear a little more about, you've mentioned a couple already, but other education initiatives, programs that have been become important to you personally, you know, as a scholar, as a leader, as an educator, any that stick out to you? Sure. So, you know, when you have good friends and, and, and folks that have been in the, in the work with you for years, it's hard to just call out a few. So <laughs> let me start by saying that. Like I could, I could probably yeah. <laughs> offer up an annotated bibliography Absolutely. of who's doing some like dopeness in the world, who's advancing our knowledge, our understanding, but but ultimately like putting out tools and resources that folks can pick up today to do mm-hmm. something with. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
And I will, will share a few additional resources, but, you know, there's some really exciting initiatives coming out of Communities for Just Schools Fund and other aligned grassroots coalitions working with youth and intergenerational organizers. These initiatives are important to me because they intentionally and deliberately thread a needle that, that many other programs, initiatives, and like coalitions ignore or overlook, right? They're, they're benefiting every student while addressing the specific needs, experiences, and offering up targeted universalist approaches, right? So the reason why I'm so excited by the work of member organizations and and grantees of, of Communities for Just Schools Fund, because they start with youth and community organizers, education organizers, folks from ecumenical societies and and other regional or hyper-local organizations saying, here is the experience in my community for my children and for myself. Here's what it suggests about how the system, our school, our district, our state is exerting force in particular ways that is often unseen and unnamed. Here is where I would start a redesign because until we address X, Y, or Z. So for example, we had parents in California saying, are you noticing this trend that your children are being performance managed from school onto the school to prison pipeline? Those are parents naming their students, their young people's experience that got normalized into a construct and a set of practices that were deeply studied. But it started with parents naming an experience and a thing, right? So I think it's powerful when communities come together to name a thing to build power, to share resources. And I'm not talking about just exerting force always on systems, but to work with systems to identify where and how to transform the experience and then to reliably create a set of healthy whole child outcomes. So, you know, here's what I mean. I mean, we want every student to receive the best quality education, period. No caveats, no clauses. And we also recognize that some students may be multilingual learners, may live in an unstable housing situation or face other challenges, right? Might might have diverse learning needs. We can improve those student experiences, right? The things that would meet their unique needs. And by meeting their unique needs, we see that the entire system gets better. When you bring the best of diverse learner tools, resources into gen ed, so to speak, wow, it is unlocking. It allows all young people to be seen and thrive. And so I'm really excited, excited for that. That's wow. amazing. I I am being very inspired by this conversation. I can, I can only imagine. This is nice. I know. Well, I can you. only imagine the difficulty. I, I mean, you even were talking about it, the power of, of naming Things that are happening in one's community. I think that what I've seen, at least in our area, where so Kate, Kate's mentioned it's rural Ohio, and I think that one thing that happens, particularly in smaller, pretty homogenous communities, I guess I would say, uh, such as these, is that there's a tendency to not want to name 
things because that's seen as a shameful mm-hmm. act because yep. if we name it, then we have to admit that it's been there all along and that we haven't dealt with it and it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be really difficult and it, and it takes a great deal of care with how you communicate with, with people in communities, with stakeholders in these systems to get across what you were just saying. And that's that everyone is, is raised up when we, when we do these things, everyone, you know, everyone benefits. These are not, this is not a a shaming process. This is not, but, but if we do not identify these issues and try to find out the causes of them and try to address the causes of them, then it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult. And I, I, I think yeah. that's one of the things that we've encountered. Mm-hmm. Just there's just a lot of momentum going in one direction that has to be slowed down so that we can kind of stop and look and see just what it is in this landscape that that we need to deal with as a school system yeah, or and, whatever it may be. And how do we hold space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is not the untrained person that I am encouraging to hold the space. Right? So when we don't appropriately scaffold when we don't have the relational trust and we ask community to narrate their experience and we don't have the intention to hear and center them in meaning making, it can show up as a usury experience where we're asking someone to reveal every hurt, injury, and trauma. That's not the intention here, Mm -hmm. right? The intention here is to create the space with a young person that second grader can say to you, everywhere I go in this building, someone's asking me by what right do I belong here? Where Latino parents in in California could say, noticing this pattern, where folks like Chris Chapman and the brothers from Kingmakers of Oakland who were part of Oakland Unified School District And Tony Smith, as the superintendent at the time, could say, we got to start talking to folks in the community, particularly Black boys, because we are seeing a very clear and codified pipeline from school to the Alameda County Jail. What's happening? What's driving it? And so remaining not just curious about like, why, but what are the set of experiences that would signal how the system is actually working? Right. And so, you know, I, I think, Chelsea, you feel me. I think, you, you know, we, we, we agree with each other. And I just want to push those that would would then start holding focus groups. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. that, that's not the intention. And so it it, it takes relational trust and yep. it takes a, a, a container um, to be prepared to to actually address whatever you might hear. And I also and, think and, that and the stomach. Yes. It takes a lot of time. Say, yeah. A lot of time too, yes. which is often short. It's kind of shortchanged because yeah. people people are very energetic and want progress now, and we see you know we see the the reasons why we need yeah. to make change. But establishing those trusting relationships can take a very very long time, and they also take you know the right people doing the right jobs and the right. Yeah, it's just yeah. it can be a, a really interesting challenge, but absolutely worthwhile. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah. and I think that's that's what. There are some ways of accelerating, and I'm not talking about accelerating process and relationship development, but there are some things that, let's say, philanthropy can do, right, as as an example. 
to create the kind of learning environments where the needs of all students are being met, philanthropy can bridge, can convene, can bring researchers, practitioners, and policymakers together, right, by acting as a connector or a facilitator. It can bring community into relation with those other actors. And not because we're trying to manage, but we can hold space. And folks are much more apt to accept the invitation of philanthropy. Philanthropic partners can also work to catalyze and invest in development of the conditions necessary to build learning environments that work for all students and scale solutions based in research and science and experiences of students, families, and communities and educators. Like those are tactical things that not fast track, but, but can act as accelerants. Excellent. Yeah. I would love to hear more from you about how philanthropic partners are serving some of these ends and how philanthropy specifically uh, slots into some of these change processes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think philanthropy is, is uniquely positioned to support bridging and holding of space to bring diverse actors, folks across lines of difference, power, differential, and communities together to more deeply interrogate and understand a set of experiences, make meaning of those dynamics, and start to map and invest in solution development, tools, resources, not in in an incubated lab, right, but in the heart of addressing and solving discrete problems of practice in community to then develop tests, right? Develop policies, develop tools and resources that can be spread, that can be made available for free to exponentially more more educators. I mean, I think of the kind of work that WestEd did in partnership with CCSSO in the first months that COVID shut schools, right? Moved very quickly to bring together leading scientists, practitioners, educators, you know, community folk to say like, all right, what's happening? What do you need? What's the kind of guidance and and protocols, right? Like well before there was a playbook, there were folks gathering to develop that white label playbook, right? The kinds of things that Castle and Bar, you know, Bar is unparalleled in the market in that it was founded by Angie Durbeck as a social worker, right, who was trying to support young people that were well-engaged and performing at high levels in a subset of classrooms, but totally failing and off the rails in others, right? To, To understand, like, what's that about? What's happening? What are the set of experiences that are leading to success, And success defined as like the core academic, right? But also engagement, right? Connectivity, attendance, right? What's happening in in this environment versus the other? How do we create the kind of open communication amongst educators where they can share those tools and resources? It's not some externality that's developing something and plopping it down into your community. It's the mm-hmm. trading of knowledge. It's the, the, mm-hmm. the trading of, of positional authority and regard 
you know, how, how do we move into then a primary person role where the person that has the strongest developmental relationship and high regard from the student to, to say, yeah, hey, wait a minute, you're yeah. at risk of failing in this class because you're not showing up. How do we resolve that? How do we get you engaged there, right? And so I think there, there are ways that philanthropy can stand on the balcony, look across a field, can be, maintain networks and relationships to harvest and understand like what's working, not be the arbiter of what's working, right? But from community demand, be elevating what's working and invest in those things to move from one community of dynamic impact to others. Yeah. Right. And I, I think those are the kinds of things that Castle, that membership associations like AASA do really well, elevating bright spots, making tools and resources available for others to say, like, mm-hmm. here was a presenting problem, here were the tools that were used. And also in communities of practice, here's how you might leverage them for, for impact in your community. So yeah. I, I hope that yeah. makes sense as, it does. as some no, very it does, targeted absolutely. examples. It's really helpful. Yeah. I would be so curious to know, just in your experience, if there are particular indicators of success when it comes to managing the relationship between philanthropic partners and like classroom educators specifically, because I don't want to be like, okay, what are the requirements for that relationship to be fruitful? Because that's going to be kind of difficult, but I would I would love to know, you know, the most successful re- partnerships between philanthropic organizations and classroom educators, what are those predicated on basically? Like what are the building blocks that make those relationships really strong? Because I'd love for, I'd love for more educators to find more of these resources. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. there can be some silos or some, some resistance, but, but I think some of it just comes from not knowing what's available, not knowing, uh, not knowing just what all is out there. So I'm curious to hear what you think are the most important drivers of, of really successful partnerships in that, in the sense of philanthropy in schools? Yeah. So I think it's, it's helpful to name some shifts that I think have to happen. Um, even as I'm naming, um, some opportunities, I think to shift toward where we want to be from where we are now, the, the most important first step is to see the problem of educational inequity as one of system design. Right, like it is not a foregone conclusion that folks see it as a design misfire, but by design. I think exponentially more folks, particularly educators, through COVID saw fractures in the system and just how variable based on access, based on socioeconomic status, based on based on race, class, indigeneity, folks were in in access opportunities right? The kinds of resources that some communities had available where others might not have. I think after George Floyd's murder, we saw even more folks see and understand a set of dynamics, Mm -hmm. right? So first is seeing the problem as as one of of educational inequity as a design, uh, a system design issue. Right. And so philanthropic partners can play a critical role in transforming system structures from building will and holding space for folks to come together in community at a regional level, at a state level, across communities about the goals of the system. 
right, to bringing more diverse voices. And again, we don't have a whole lot of folks from rural communities in these conversations. We should, right? So we, we can actually, through who we invite into spaces, through who we bring into spaces, we can start to shift, like, whose voice is centered, whose experience is centered. When you talk about, you know, your the dynamics in rural Ohio, like, somebody from outside of your community is not best served holding that space, mm. right? Like, we're not talking about incubated research projects. We're actually talking about homegrown in community, holding space to unpack a set of things and what it suggests about where and how educational experiences, the the normative ways that the school, not a metaphoric X school, can modify its practices, can deploy resources, how the state can bring dollars down to the district, how the district deploys those resources to specific schools, right? Those are all things that are within our, our sphere of influence and control. Um, to what's taught, to how resources are distributed and, and who's hired and, and retained in the profession, right? By targeting those efforts to address not only structural drivers, but the intersection of how resources are used and how student experience dovetails with them, right? So I think philanthropy can play a critical role in advancing resource equity, right? Every child deserves a quality education, period, point blank. One that recognizes their unique needs and provides them the resources they need to reach their full potential. Like, I'm going to keep saying that. I probably <laughs> sound like a broken record, but like, no. I don't know why that's such a crazy idea. I know. No. Yeah. <laughs> why do I have to keep saying this? Won't somebody <laughs> listen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been really excited about the work that we've supported, but that is happening in states 10 state coalitions that's being funded through the Resource Equity Funders Collaborative, right? So it's grassroots organizing efforts, not a single, but multiple with diversity of perspectives and experiences and, and opinions and grass tops organizations. And when those things, you know, meet in the middle, right? If there is ever a neutral ground where they are sharing the imperatives that they they respond to and are grappling with how, how best to work in partnership, develop relationships, which is long, long-term long work, right? And support a collective effort to drive durable systemic change in public education systems. I think that's where we start to see children thrive and, and have the resources they need. Tennessee is a, a perfect example that's really taking this on and moving not just through urban corridors, right? But urban, suburban, rural corridors to to really make sure that communities are getting the resources they need to address systemic problems, structural challenges, and and meet student needs. Powerful stuff. Excellent. We're going to take you out of the hot seat ever so slightly here and ask you some more fun questions here in one second. But just before that, I want to kind of ask you where you see this work that you've just been speaking about in the context of especially the last couple of years of challenge gripping this country and the world. I really would be curious to hear from you where you see your work going from here, maybe like the next decade of, of your work. I will use the, the language. Uh, I will use pointed language. It is a privilege and I recognize it as such to do the work that I love I honestly believe I was put on the planet for this moment in time, right? And so 
I will be doing some version of this work for the rest of my natural life, right? And that's not because I, I love where I work. I do. But the reality is I've been doing this work for over 20 years. I'm going to keep doing it, whether I'm in this current seat or in 10 more. There is, uh, there is a, such a, a powerful through thread. So I will be using every tool, every strategy, every aspect of my voice, of my, my charm, <laughs> of my technical <laughs> skill um, to, to ensure that the promise of America, right? The promise of America is made real for every student, right? And that, that's, that sounds wonky. Wait, let me try saying it a, a slightly different way. I am committed. I am an unapologetic commitment to ensuring our system is just and equitable in its impact. And not that it regresses to a mean where everyone gets just a fair to Midland experience. No, I'm actually saying that in these United States, that we are reliably producing the kinds of powerful experiences in learning environments where it would matter not whether you are, as my dad would say, living high on the hog with all the resources in the world, or, you know, born into a family that doesn't have all of their, their, their core needs met, mm-hmm. that you would have still in these United States access to a superior education that supports you to develop the skill will, tools, and resources to design a life of your own choosing. Like, end game for me. That that's I'll be doing some form or fashion of that work for the rest of my life. This is like oh, the best man. hype speech ever. For a, <laughs> You know, here's, here's the truth. Like, I don't work for everyone. Some mm-hmm. folks are like, yeah, 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 the, the system ain't broke. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, you know. <laughs> I, I I can take you on a tour de force of this commute of this these United States and this again, I can poke holes in in a lot of different folks' conceptualization. This is not a black problem. This is not a brown problem. This is not a BIPOC problem. This is an access and opportunity problem, mm-hmm. and there is no reason that that should be the truth of it in in these United States. We can do better. We can. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I want to now give you an opportunity or want our listeners to hear too. It seems like, um, and this is certainly true of us, the, Katie and I, we have had educators, teachers in our lives who have made big differences in the course of our trajectories or careers or lives. We would be thrilled to hear from you if you had an educator or educators in your life who have made an impact like that, who have, you know, maybe a couple people who have have motivated you or inspired you in the way that you are currently inspiring us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. When you ask that, you know how the, the cartoon light bulb flashes and you have like <laughs> yeah. that thought bubble? I had two mm-hmm. that went off immediately. And so when I first, you know, when I first heard the question, immediately two, two things jumped into my mind almost at the same time. One, Miss Sussman. She was my first grade teacher. And I'm a little fuzzy. I don't don't know why. I'm a little fuzzy, but she saw that I wasn't fully stimulated, right? And so gave me jobs, understood that my brain is really active. And so I'm processing very quickly. 
right? And so in processing very quickly, it's like, and now what? And now what? And now what? Mm-hmm. And so I will engage. I will find now what? I can engage <laughs> in like wild Mad Lib. And that's such an 80s reference, right? The Mad Max Mad Libs. Or I think what, what another teacher said was I was Madam Butterfly. I can flitz around and like talk to other people and like figure out ways to amuse myself. Mm-hmm. I think as a collective, the other bubble was the curated safe space and the educators of Manhattan Country School. Manhattan Country School was founded on the principles of the civil rights movement with a deep belief that in a segregated society, we are all harmed because we don't learn from the best and brightest and the genius of other cultures, of other ways of thinking, of other ways of being. And when we do, wow, it is an unlocking. It is the very same school where Tanahasi Coates, when he is writing to his son, between the world and me, he is talking about his son living in the bubble. The mm-hmm. bubble is the safe space in the community of Manhattan Country School, and not <sighs> recognizing that the world could do him and would do him harm. Yeah. But in that space, it's um, so pre-K through eighth grade school, and it very rarely do folks like think in such powerful ways and are still very committed and connected to their grammar school. But um, it helped me figure out in middle school, who I was, right? Like who I was in a world, what it meant to be an ally exposed me to not just content, but was grappling with implications of a true and accurate history, a true and accurate history that is our shared legacy. And then asking a middle schooler, and so what are you going to do about it? And what is the world that you want to build, right? It was a magical place, but a magical place that reinforced messages that I received at home, that I am smart, that I am capable, that I am worthy, right? Particularly during that period of of middle school, adolescent development of like, Stress, angst, anxiety, questions mm-hmm. about who you are. It, it gave me explicit scaffolds to figure out who I am. What are the innate, what's the innate genius? How does my brain work? But also like, where is, where's there an underside of this robust personality, right? And how do I manage that? So <laughs> yes, it, it, a, a special place. I I would be so curious to know, uh, you know, if if folks generally were asked that question, how many would point to a middle school experience? Um, because as you mentioned a couple of times, middle school can be because yeah. for me as well, it was uh, there was a you know a middle school teacher I had for for a couple of years uh, through middle school it was in a class that. I desperately needed. I, I I didn't know at the time that I desperately needed to be in this class, but I desperately needed to be in this class because it provided me something that I didn't know that I needed um, until I was until I was getting it. I just didn't know that mm-hmm. I had those needs as yeah. a learner. I didn't know that I needed more of a certain kind of stimulation or different kinds of things to work on in the con- in a different social context. I didn't know that I needed all of that. And I would say that it, it definitely helped me survive a, a time that would have been especially yeah. socially extremely difficult to navigate <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's great to hear. But I, I just, I do think middle school tends to be a, 
can, can be a make or break moment for, for many, many young learners. It can. So, it can. Yeah. It can. Yeah. It's tough times. We are big readers on the show, as you might imagine, with an English teacher in the room. And I am a, uh, I went to a great book school for my undergraduate program. So books galore. We would love to hear uh, any books or even other resources I think you might have mentioned for our listeners to help them navigate uh, some of the challenges that we've been talking about faced by educators striving to build more equitable learning environments. What are your what are your go to, you know, books, pods, or just what anything. you like to read for fun? Too. Yes, that too, that too. Okay, so um, I'm, I wonder if I should share this on a podcast where it robs me of my ability to play the parlor game of two truths and a lie. But I read romance <laughs> novels. I love okay. them. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, so yeah, you, you know, here's the thing. I'm not a TV watcher. The truth is, right. um, especially when you are working with some of the most resistant and challenging populations of, of young people, like you can get tired, you can be burnt out. Um, mm-hmm. And so think 16 Candles historical version, mm-hmm. like a very, typical, very like it. not quite Bridgerton, like that's okay. a little a bit more yeah. than mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yes. Um, so that's so, an escape for you. That's like a that true is. escape. Um, yeah. So I, I will share with you some resources, though, that I, I think folks can pick up today and use today, right? And and those are the kinds of cheat sheets, guidance, and and tools that I think are most most helpful. What's actionable? That's always my question. For whom is it actionable? And if it isn't, does the world need it right now? So. The Bell, the Bell Network actually maintains a resource library that can be accessed at library.bellnetwork, all one word, .org. In the library, you'll find the latest actionable tools, research, and recommendations, and other resources for every level of the education system that are geared toward creating classrooms where every student feels valued and can develop fundamental life skills right? The academic, the integrated identity, the social, the cultural, and well-being supports that they need, right? And so that's that's a teaser that starts to point to other resources and clearinghouses. One of the latest pieces of the research or white paper to come out of the Bell Network is by PERTS um, and the University of Chicago, and it's titled, Learning Conditions are an Actionable Early Indicator of Math Learning. So for all those folks that say like, mm-hmm. hey, you're walking out on the student experience, but what about academics? It is all in service of academics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> right? like, Absolutely. I am yeah. not advancing a world where schools don't get to the get down of educating kids. That's not the <laughs> right? So the research brief focuses on quantifying the relationship between math achievement and the elevate learning conditions. And so elevate are a, a set of measures. Again, you can access that details and the, the science warrant, the justification, the, the undergirding behind elevate on the, the Bell Library. So I think it's, it's important to kind of like point out just why I, th- why I stand behind it, why I'm so excited by um, these measures, right? So a few key headlines would be, one, students were two times more likely to earn an A or B in math when they experienced teacher caring, meaningful work, and feedback for growth. Mm-hmm. 
Positive learning conditions benefit all students, regardless of race, gender, family income, or prior grades, but they may be specifically important for students who are least well-served or who had been least well-served, not in a metaphoric district, but in your school, in that classroom. In typical classes, learning conditions got worse over time, and shifts in learning conditions predicted subsequent changes in in, in grades, right? So if you are not attending to things by design, particularly as you get into the long, dark, cold months of February, March, yeah. right? Like yeah. folks don't have anything in the, in the tank. And so uh-huh. again, in typical classes, learning conditions got worse over time, right? And so if you're not actively attending to and attuning to it, It has an impact on grades. Mm -hmm. And then learning conditions improved when teachers engaged their students in cycles of inquiry and action with big gains, with the bigger gains after more cycles, right? So 10x growth after four versus two cycles. And I'm not talking about multi-day deep inquiry. I am talking about quick access to information Mm -hmm. that educators can see and use, and they retain the right to see and use. It's not a performative accountability measure, right? But educators can engage and ask questions of their students. How is what I am doing landing for you? I think I'm making all the moves, but is it landing for you? And if it isn't, in what ways is it not landing? That's powerful, usable data. So I'll just stop there, but I think it's worth a read and it sets up educators, school leaders, and district personnel to really understand why measure and attune to student experience. What's the academic, but also the developmental wins. Excellent. Awesome. We'll include those in the links. We shall include all of these in the show notes. Anything else that you want to toss out for our listeners to hear? Anything you just think is cool or you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, this is, and this is not about being political, right? Because what we've been talking about is the core of what every teacher knows, what is the heart of good, good teaching and learning and, and mm-hmm. educator practice, right? And that, that's not political. And yet, I do want to call out um, some great polling research coming out of Ipsos, right? And so I can, I can link that. But they found that three in four Americans and three and four parents strongly agree that classrooms should be places for learning, not political battlegrounds. Say that again, right? Three and four parents strongly agree that classrooms should be places for learning, not political battlegrounds. There's a high demand from from parents to keep politics out of the classroom. And I think that sometimes it's easy to lose sight of of this in the highly politicized environment that we're living in, right? And so at the end of the day, parents of all stripes want truthful education, classrooms where students are valued and accepted, curriculum uh, curriculum that sets kids up to succeed and have, you know, the kinds of, of scaffolds, the kinds of relationships that are affirming, Right. That's, that's about ensuring that young people are energized and prepared, right, to lead and navigate a global economy and a multiracial society. Like, that's what parents want. So there's a lot of noise that would suggest something different. But when we ask, 
And we ask not a subset on the left or a subset on the right or just the middle. When we ask parents, they broadly agree with this, right? And so I'm excited to continue to see and be part of the work happening between teachers, educators more broadly, administrators, caregivers, students, and more to create learning environments where students feel accepted, valued, regardless of race, gender identity, religion, or anything else, right? Where where they are seen, they're understood, and our school systems are reliably deploying resources to them when they need them in ways that will help their their growth and development. I'm excited for that. Yeah. I am too. I am too, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we are just about at the end here. We do have a, a, a tradition on the show of sharing with our listeners something that we have learned uh, in the in the past couple of weeks uh, in between episodes. Um, it, this is pretty fun. It doesn't have to be re- related to your work, but it could be if you wanted to. Um, would you like to share with our listeners something that you have learned in the last couple of weeks? Ooh. I could go in so many different ways, and this feels like a curveball. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> I'm a planner. You asked the question about how am I taking care of myself. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure that I, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about that question until more recently. One, because I am acutely aware of the privilege that I have been afforded, the access to superior education, to opportunities that... Not everybody in my family had, right? That most of the folks from my community didn't have. And I can hear my mother's voice in powerful ways saying, you will be invited into places that your brother won't, that your cousins won't. It is your job to make sure when you get there, they are comfortable. In today's language, you talk about belong and belonging. And that they can come freely on their own and they don't have to rely on you to be there. And that has been a drumbeat in my mind and heart, even as I was figuring out my own personal constitution on why I do this work. So one of the things I I learned was deeply personal. And that's why I could say with such strong conviction, I'm going to do this for the rest of my natural life. I don't know. I don't know if that's a cop out, but that's the truth. It's not a cop out at all. Not at all. Goodness, no. All right. uh, Katie, would you like to share with us what you learned? Yeah. Mine's kind of just useless knowledge. So, useless knowledge is sometimes. I'm a walking factoid. Uh, uh, I just like love trivia. Oh my gosh. I was just going to say, we need you on our trivia team. Yes. Yes. I'm here for it. Absolutely. You can come anytime. You tell us. Yep. If you're ever around, we will find trivia with you. Okay. Here's what I learned. So maple syrup bottles, you know how they have like that little circle on the top that isn't really big enough for like your finger to actually grab a hold of it. So Hank Green, TikTok, who is one of my favorite people, any green brother I love, but especially Hank. So he stitched this TikTok and shared that the reason that today still our syrup bottles have that little ring on the top is because... When they originally made syrup, it was in like five gallon jugs. And so they actually needed the ring because that's what you would hold on to as you like laid it over your arm to pour. And it's an example of what we would now call a skeuomorphic. 
And it's basically, <laughs> they're like derivative objects that retain an ornamental design cue from whatever they originally started as. So like the save button is a floppy disk. Nobody uses that. Or like how one of the other examples he gave was on like car tires, like how our hubcaps look like spokes of a wheel, but they don't actually serve as a spoke. They just look like it. So I didn't know that thing had a word, but it's just, you know, any, anything more design that represents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was Who knew? Thank you. I know. I know. There you go. Yeah. Steve I got jobs. massive student loans and <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Who's really learning what? You know, oh, let's do the important thing here. <laughs> learning. I uh, <laughs> skeuomorphic design. So I'm I work in technology uh, now, mostly, and skeuomorphic design became very uh, present in design conversations for a while because Steve Jobs of Apple was a big fan of skeuomorphic design. He liked to put things like real metal and leather textures on software. So that it looked like it was, you know, machine tooled or something like that. He was a big Hello. fan of, of skeuomorphic design. And and now everything has gone in the completely opposite direction. This flat material design thing now dominates design in the technology industry. But there are people who miss the the approachability of the skeuomorphic, mm-hmm. the more skeuomorphic approach. Well, yeah. And it's also why, like, our phones, if we have a sound on, like, it makes a shudder sound when we uh-huh. take a picture. It's not because uh-huh. it's actually... Yeah, you know, same like deal. Shutter in the way that it used to be, but yeah. Yep. Okay, yes. I will right, throw Charles, mine out learn. there. Yeah, I'll throw mine out there. I'm still working my way through this book that I mentioned on the last episode called "The Idea Factory: Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation." It's turning out to be fascinating to me, despite the fact I it delves really deep into technical details of like materials science and early computing and telecommunications. And that's research about which I know very little, but it is fascinating to me. And anyway, in my most recent reading, I've been been learning a lot about semiconductors and the invention of the transistor, which is a tiny, well, oftentimes, they, oftentimes they're small, but a small, efficient semiconductor that's used to amplify or switch electrical signals. Which what I learned was the kind of impact of this invention, which I really did not, I had never considered, but some folks consider the transistor to be the most important invention of the 20th century. Um, And we can see that impact directly in computing. Transistors are what go on commercial processors that are in every single one of our electronic devices that we use. So anyway, just a little eye into how this gets into our daily lives. The current, uh, the largest transistor count on a commercial processor, so a little a little computer chip that sits in your computer, the the largest transistor count on a commercial processor is 114 billion on Apple's M1 Ultra chip. There are billion with a B, billion with a B, 114 billion transistors what? on one of those little chips that goes into Apple's M1 Ultra chip that powers their wow. Mac, Mac desktop, sorry, desktop computers. And then Intel, so Intel, and uh, we are, as being in central Ohio, Intel is building a huge chip factory just down the road from us right now. But Intel predicts that there will be a trillion transistors on commercial chips by 2030, which oh my gosh. I went in, Yeah, afterwards I went into a pretty deep dive as to how chips are manufactured because I was like, how do you fit... 114 billion of anything on something right. the size of a postage stamp, essentially. <laughs> but that is what they are doing. That is why 
the labs are so expensive to build. Um, yeah, I guess. Wow. It is some interesting wow. technology. That's what I learned about. Didn't know anything about that before now. I'm not a hardware person so much as a software person, but uh, interesting stuff. And I had no idea. <laughs> I, I almost feel like I need a do-over, but I don't know that I have anything quite that juicy. <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh, no. You're, it, it was perfect. <laughs> it was wonderful. And thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful yeah. conversation. This is awesome. Yeah. Any, any closing thoughts, parting wisdom for our listeners before we say goodbye? I think where I ended, I'd, I'd loop back to if we listen to a news cycle, it is easy to be convinced that the overwhelming majority of people, parents and communities want a thing. That's not actually the truth of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It just feels like educators, parents, community, students, I think we have to use more of our voice to say like, yeah, no, that's not right. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that's not why I got in this business. Yeah, no developmentally, it's not healthy, Mm -hmm. right? So I am hopeful that more folks will name the thing, even though it's hard, will be in Mm -hmm. relationship with others to unpack the experiences and get to addressing the acute needs of today and designing for a better tomorrow together. I'm optimistic. I'm excited. Waiting for my invitation to Ohio. <laughs> we there you will, go. You've already got it. We are eager to have you. you don't have to so. wait any longer. <laughs> Thank you so much Giselle, for joining this was us. Awesome. Yes, this yeah, really was. Uh, we love hearing from you. This is exciting work that you were doing and have been doing your entire career. Yeah, um, I am. I am inspired. This has been. This has been wonderful, and we really appreciate your time. Ditto. Deep appreciation for you. Thank you. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. That has been this week's episode of 16 to 1. Thank you again. See you in All two right. weeks. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Hey, listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show.